You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tuesday Ryanhart. And I'm Tim Murray. This week on the podcast, we are talking to the brilliant Kate Inglis. That's right. Who has a new book out called Notes for the Everlost. She's an outside team member, helps us brand, find our identity, write language. Like she is an all around kind of keeps us together. Right, Tim? Absolutely. Friend, colleague. And today I found out some amazing new things about her that just kind of rocked my world. Absolutely. So this is Kate's fourth book, right? And so this book, uh, I'm just going to read you a little bit from the back. So you've got some context for the book, because I think it will give you some sense of the place she's talking through, talking from on the podcast. So when Kate Inglis's twin boys were born prematurely, one survived and the other did not. Part memoir, part handbook for the heartbroken, this powerful, unsparing account of loss will speak to all who have been bereaved and are grieving and offers a beacon as we practice integrating loss into life. Everything that exists was born without reason and will die by chance. Jean-Paul Sartre, Nausea. If we believe in nothing, if nothing has any meaning, and if we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has any importance. Albert Camus, The Rebel. It is true, we don't learn how little mastery we have over our destinies until something goes terribly wrong. The crisis is in how cold Sartre's dark night feels, and how unpromising and grey the morning dawn of Camus. But there's a useful seed in nothingness. Here it is. Ease up on trying to figure out your loss of innocence, appetite, dignity, fertility, faith, fetuses, people you love. You won't. No matter what happens to us in our lives, it is unfigurable. Nothing and no one is deserving or undeserving. Everything is born. Everything dies. All is chaos. But then, consider the absurd. Try again. Nothingness can live alongside tenacity and optimism. Turn over soil that lacks nutrients. It is a brittle crust. Nothing will grow in it. Be generative in a freshly tilled and damp plot. Pain is manure. Earnestness is sunshine. If nothing has any importance, then everything does, even small things. Everything is possible. That is Camus' dawn. We ascribe value and meaning to life when we produce it ourselves, free of doctrine. With his God is dead, Nietzsche shook off the dogmatic yoke. Imagine determining what matters most with a clean slate and the common sense do unto others morality of humanism. Rather than turning to a holy book for the answer of all answers, why not look to buttercream and vegetable gardens? This is why I'd share a bowl of sticky toffee pudding with Nietzsche. The 19th century Prussian philosopher as seconded in Bob Marley's Heaven on Earth anthem, Get up, stand up. Nietzsche called the great emptiness our deepest opportunity for self-reflection. The moment you're strong enough to meet that emptiness, the cancer, the addiction, the miscarriage, the lost baby, the impossible problems, you are strong enough to jump off the hamster wheel of thinking it through. To move, stay put, say the Buddhists. 
to see, stop looking. Don't imagine paradise in the sky. Make paradise in the kitchen. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> You're amazing, Kate. That's was, not meant to be such a... It's beautiful. It, sound, it, it was a bit more of a, a more secular piece than I meant, but I think the reason why I chose that from the book, which is you know primarily a book about grief, but ultimately a book about living, is that I feel like it's relevant to the work that you do and the work that we're doing together and the work that everyone does who is listening. If they are sort of seeking a better world and, and wanting to believe in a better world when the world is honestly feeling like such a mess, mm. such a roiling, sort of like like a blown fuses everywhere, just such a mess right now. I'm sure everyone who has ever lived has felt like their world was the messiest. Mm-hmm. I'm certain my world is the messiest. But we, I think there's a value in sort of facing the potential of nihilism you know, when we're in grief to face that kind of, well, what if the worst case scenario is the truth? What mm-hmm. if there really is just nothing? That's not to discount religious belief or spiritual belief. I don't know what's out there and I believe in all kinds of things. But when we are willing to consider that worst case scenario, what if this really is all we've got? Mm. That's not depressing at all. That is a green light to mm. say there is so much meaning in everything and there is so much opportunity everywhere and that even in the context of wanting to make change and feeling cynical in a way that I think when you're grieving, you can feel hopeless because these problems are too big. This this grief, this trauma is too big. This pain is too big. Um, and we can apply that conceptually to the world and the kind of problems we want to solve and feeling kind of too small for problems that are too big. But um, I like sort of the, um, the sum effect of nihilism, which is to say, all we can do is recognize how precious all of our efforts are, even if it's just in small ways. Mm. Because that is the inherent value of life is in the trying. Yeah. There's a great there's a great quote from Thomas Merton, which is which is basically invites you to forgo all hope of results. Right. It's actually when you when you when you surrender all hope of results that you begin to really enter the real work, you know, and to build the relationships, you know, between you that sustain your ability to be in the real work, you know. And so there's something like there's some echoes of what you're saying in that of like often, you know, often we're working on things and we'll be like three years in, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's just like knocked out the park. Like it, it can feel like we're back to square one again, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I feel like the pace I constantly go to, and this isn't quite nihilistic, but the place that I find myself constantly going to, and I feel like I ask you to do this quote like every single day we're doing work, you know, mm-hmm. is this sense of like the long arc of change, That's like to actually begin to understand our work as something that is like you know flowing over multiple generations, mm-hmm. you know, and that we are standing on the shoulders of multiple generations of change leaders and people who have stepped up in the face of incredible odds to do what felt right anyway yeah you know and so I think that's a piece of it I mean we were just in a I was just in a session yesterday in one of the breakout groups when we were working around the with with sport and we were and there was a conversation around who are we serving right and so of course we're serving the people who are in the sports system now Mm -hmm. but one of the uh one of the Mi'kmaq leaders one of the indigenous leaders in the room was like well in our community we think about this as seven generations 
you know yeah. so actually who are we really serving we're, we're serving future generations of Nova Scotians that's who we're working on behalf of and so if we're only taking into account the opinions of people who are alive now right in in many ways we're only serving a very small percentage of the people we're really building our systems change for anyway yeah and so it was really and it completely shifted how we were thinking about the work and how we were launching the work and how we were thinking about and we were in a conversation around branding which is where we're going to go today like how we brand and position the work out there in the world when we suddenly started thinking about it as holding this longer arc of change Mm -hmm. yeah I went actually to the same place I was thinking as you were talking Kate about how so many of our efforts we just don't know and you just make them Right. You just make them because that's what you're here to do or there's some longed for future that you won't realize. And I was I was uh, I was curious. That feels so present. Uh, and you mentioned the Mi'kmaq community It feels so present in the African-American community that like, mm-hmm. you know, like, we're, you know, we likely won't see our liberation. Our ancestors certainly didn't see our liberation. Right. There's a. There's a Maya Angelou quote around, I am the hope and the dream of the slave that just moves me so much, right? Just like, oh, right. The, like the I am, I was thinking about it as like, uh, like roots, like they come up and they pop up. One pop up was my grandfather and then he sprung forth, you know, seeds and then another root system and then I popped up and then, you know, like my daughter's life will be different from mine and her daughter's will be different from hers. And um, I was thinking about, but you don't, like the flower doesn't know, right, when it releases it's seeds or it plant doesn't know what's going to happen, but like, that's what you do. It's almost like this, this impulse, this very human impulse. It's just, I feel like in some groups we get to be more aware of it yeah, because of circumstance or because of cultural belief or, you know, but there's just something around, um, in some ways I feel like that's, you know, the, the quote you like is the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And that's an MLK Jr. quote. And so there's something about, um, and it's not, like you said, it's not exactly nihilism because it's not like it's, it may be for not, but I guess, Mm -hmm. and I think in in my community, it feels like it is for future. It is absolutely future gazing. And there is some belief and some hope with it, but it's not because you're bearing the fruits now. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think we're such, we're such funny creatures. We're so arrogant. Mm. You know, we think we know what the results need to be, but Mm -hmm. we don't. So I think if we can, um, and I think, you know, my affection right now and and my thinking for nihilism isn't so much nothing matters. It's not that. What it is, is it's, um, so what if, quote unquote, nothing matters? Mm. What do we Mm -hmm. do with that? How do we move forward if everything is dust? Right. So then... How do I want to conduct myself in my life to make, to drop seeds, to make little bursts of connection? Because one relationship is that sort of, this feeling very cliche, but one relationship is that sort of butterfly wing, you know, Mm -hmm. that changes the breeze just a little. And it's not to say we shouldn't worry about results or shouldn't think about results, Mm because we should. We should be thinking, did that program get off the ground? Did I make a difference? But I think that we make a difference by trying and by following those connections and conversations and relationships a little more humbly Mm. um, and trusting that the sum effect of our trying is worthwhile, 
even if we don't think that we got the results that we thought we should have gotten. You know what I yeah. mean? Absolutely. And it, it's just a way of not being discouraged because what you yeah. stand for, what you try for and how you try matters more in the moment than what did I directly impact or achieve? Mm -hmm. It kind of frees you up a little bit. Ultimately, we want yeah. to have that direct impact. But I think if we fuss too much over that right now, in our work right now, we can often sort of get discouraged more quickly. We can really bog ourselves in, I think. Well, and that's completely counter to how not only that we're set up to think, but how we're rewarded, which is like, what's the impact you're having? You'll get more funding if you do like systems change, like if you didn't make big change, right in 18 months, well, you must have failed, right? So it's not I mean, I think what you're talking about is a consciousness or a perspective or an orientation. And then there are structural pieces that absolutely uh, support what you're saying is being quite radical and, and out, out of the way, right? Because mm -hmm. our structures say, what did you get done in six months? Our grant reports require us to say what our impact was. But I was thinking about how like what you say like makes perfect sense to me. And, and then when we put it into systems work, mm -hmm. like it makes perfect sense to people who are in systems, right? They're like, mm -hmm. absolutely, that's right. That's exactly. And then we, we are in structures that absolutely cannot support our not going for results will not tolerate mm -hmm. our not having immediate impact, right? And so it's quite interesting that even as we do kind of the shift in perspective or orientation or way of thinking, we are in structures that will not support that. And so that's part of what we're trying to do, right? When we talk about different kinds of evaluation, for example, or different ways of processing and structuring our relationships, it's absolutely to move to the, this kind of major shift that you're talking about that right now individuals may hold, but they're in systems that kind of Mm -hmm. I, I want to say kind of like crush that out of them. There's that. And there's also the pressure that we put ourselves that there's there's this constant battle between our own personal cynicism and feelings of being let down. And, you know, I'm not having the effect I want to have and what you need to show up every day and keep trying, yeah. you know. And, and I think, you know, in, in the writing about grief, there's a lot about normalizing exactly where you are. That mm. even when you're in despair, that's okay. Normal, healthy, honorable, good work. Because it's, you know, every tear is a nail and every, every, every cry is a hammer. You know, mm. every sigh is a hammer, I think is what I wrote. That, that you are ultimately where you need to be. And I think when we are in despair, in block, in our work, in terms of systems change, that's okay. Yeah. Because you're human. So cut a bit of slack and figure out what you need to do to just keep trying mm. even when it feels like you know it's not going the way you think it should go you know just how do you keep showing up there's lots of words we can use here right but like there's there's something about like there's some basic element of faith and i don't mean re religion yeah i mean like some faiths there's, there's like a we're throwing all kind of quotes out there again i can't remember mm. who said it but like that that like, you know, faith is leaping off a cliff, you know, and trusting you're going to get wings to fly or have something mm -hmm. soft to land on, you know. Yeah. And like, and so there's, so I think there's a huge element of faith involved in this work of like, in the midst of all of the uncertainty, mm -hmm. in the midst of all of the unpredictability, yeah. in the midst of the collapse of relationships and the collapse and dysfunction of dominant systems, 
what's the leap of faith we're willing to take? And, and, and the choice that's presented to people is, okay, in the midst of all of this uncertainty and the failing systems that we're part of, right, do I retreat and protect myself from the people I love? Mm. And give up. On, on on the work and the intention yeah or do i reach yeah. out and build a relationship and and i don't i honestly don't think it's perceived as giving up i think it's mm-hmm. perceived or understood as protecting what matters so people will, people will go into turf protection of their particular area of the system their particular town their mm-hmm. particular geography their particular family members their particular uh piece of the wealth mm-hmm. right yeah. and they'll protect it because Shit's gone crazy, right? Whether that's economic, environmental, social, yeah. right? Um, like, like the level of unpredictability and uncertainty is Batting rising. down the hatches. But, right. But of course, the more you retreat into your little kind of self-protected, turf-protected silo, actually the less capable you become to respond to the increasing levels of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the... I mean, we're constantly in this challenge because I think many people who are listening to the podcast, many of the listeners, um, although we're talk- are going to be familiar with what we're saying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they and they will, you know, that I feel like people will be touched by the evocativeness, if that's even a word, of what we're talking about here. But like the the the, the thrust of our conversation mm-hmm. is going to be something that they're encountering in their day to day work mm-hmm. and lives. That's why they're tuning into this podcast, you know. And so the so so a piece becomes: How do you make that attractive? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you make? Right, we're just going to like leap into the void, people, and figure it out as we go. Right. And we're going to chuck money, human resources, ideas into that great big cauldron, and we're going to make the future. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, how do you make that attractive? Yeah. How do you make that sellable to that dominant system right. that is demanding summative evaluation? Right. How many people have you impacted? How much money have you generated? Uh-huh. How many products have you delivered? Right, like that. So you're receiving money from a system that evaluates success mm-hmm. in a completely different way, right. right, than the consciousness that we've started this podcast with, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the things we found working with you that's been so exciting and having you in as a writer and notes to the Everlost as an incredible kind of example of how powerful your writing is, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but there's, but there's, but you've taken that talent for writing and turned it into talking about the work of the outside and mm-hmm. talking about the work of significant change that in the jargon is emergent, right? Yeah. It's not milestone. We don't get to a milestone, mm-hmm. you know, there's no finish line, right? There's no, there's no, there's like the tyranny of the finish line. There's no point when yeah. we're done. Kate, I feel like I just, with what you just said, mm-hmm. and what you just said, like, I feel like I finally got it why we like working with you so much i mean like look i mean you're brilliant and talented and you do it's beautiful and like the like but what you just said like you get working in the emergent at like a cellular soul level and that's why you can speak to it and write to it yeah. and language it in a way that feels quite unique to anyone we've ever worked with. Right. And so I just had this moment of like, oh, that's why we feel like Kate gets it so much because Kate gets it so much, yeah. right? right? Like yeah. that actually that from your bones, you understand working from that place of mm-hmm. don't know, keep going, keep trying. Don't know, don't care. 
<laughs> a bit like that in yeah, terms yeah. of like, I don't mind yeah. not knowing everything. Yeah. And it's, it's okay. There's a lot of humility in finding oneself suddenly bereaved mm. that is required in order for us to find our way to health and, and life again. And I think there's a lot of humility in the work of change. Because we have to be willing to be somewhat naked of our assumptions, our protections, our patterns, and and to be kind of always just trying to find find rhythm as we go. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I kind of understand it now. Like intuitively, <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Right. We made well, the decision we, to work we, with Kate quite intuitively. We did. Yeah. I mean, we mm-hmm. had we, there was five different groups we reached out to who came in and gave us proposals when we were launching the outside. And like the one you sent to us, we felt we saw ourselves in. Yeah. Felt that we weren't being pitched at work. We would like we're like, oh, she's got us. You sure it wasn't just the juniper ham? You know, well, you know, that was pretty good juniper ham. <laughs> I, but I, did we know the juniper ham was coming at that point? I feel I like when we picked no. sure we That's even, true, no. that's true. true. Yeah. But I just, all the rooms were just infused with the scent and you were like, what, what is this person? We need to work with this person. I was like, it's the ham. <laughs> it was yeah. the ability to, it was the ability to see and articulate yeah. our work in a yeah. way that we're looking for you know and that actually i think the whole sector's looking yeah. for and a lot of the language out there a lot of the language out there is written by uh uh you know yeah. white academic men you yeah. know and 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 like and that's not to say it hasn't been powerful like the work of otto sharma has been transformative to this field the work of peter senge has mm-hmm. been transformative to this field the work Absolutely. of adam kahane has been transformative to this field mm-hmm. right but it hasn't centered equity right and it hasn't been evocative for me you know it's mm-hmm. like help my brain yeah it's helped me design but it hasn't like brought my heart into the game you know and I feel like this work needs that you know this work like future generations calling us on like the wind in the sails of a ship in a storm right I mean like that's what we need like it's not enough just to have a technical understanding or an analysis or a a breakdown of like the U theory steps of change that actually has to be something that draws me in deeply as a human Mm -hmm. though my so my commitment isn't an intellectual one it's one of will Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and we knew, right? I don't know that we would have said this directly to you when we were looking at folks, but we knew, and we've been talking about for years, this need, like not even a desire, but a, a real fundamental need for different language around equity, yeah. that the discourse, so I'm not actually talking so much about, I mean, I am, I, I'm with you, Tim, the broader field, but I'm actually talking around language around equity right now for me feels really stuck. Like, yeah. And I, and we've said for years, like to we want to do something different. We're trying to do something different. And we don't even know how to say what we're trying to do. We're kind of intuiting it. We're, we're working with it in rooms. But for me, this need for new language, I've been talking about for probably the past 10 years, new language around equity. You know, and we've said it in this podcast before, like didn't use privilege for six months or whatever. And I was like, there has to be other language. We have to be able to say it in a different way. And so I think that for me, that's part of what you've helped us begin to articulate. And I'm not going to lie, I was pretty nervous. So if most of the language has been by academic white men, I was kind of like, I'm really going to let this white woman help us develop new language on equity. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that that's exactly where we need to go either. Yep. Um, and I do feel like as we developed the language, it was like, for example, the blog on equity that we did, yeah. uh, that took a good long time. There was a lot of back and forth. What does this feel like? You trying new things. And I was just always... 
amazed by, I would say like, no, not that word. I don't know what word, but not that it's word. It's hard to articulate right. why and something rings a bell and why something doesn't. Right. And that why must... something goes ting and why another thing goes clunk. Right. And but that's the only thing back. you can say, no, that's a clunker. Yes, that's a ting. Like, that's like, that's it. And, and it's really hard to articulate why one thing is a clunk and one thing is a ting. But you didn't say like, ah. Yeah. Or throw oh, up your no, hands. You're just like, no. okay, well, let's try something else. Because that's your ear. They're your words. So if something clunks to you, then that word is gone. Then we find something until we find something that that makes the right effect for you. So I think I think just to, for the listeners to just go check out that blog because yeah. it's an example of yeah. what you know. It's a seminal piece for us, right? It's the Big Bang of Equity and Systems Change is the name of the blog. We'll put it in the show notes um, and like go check that out because it's a combination of kind of like my thinking, Tuesday's thinking, and then Kate's thinking and writing, right? And it's mm-hmm. been you know that was a collaborative effort between the three of us to find the language yeah. that kind of like put down the root system of the mm-hmm. outside. Right. And began to find this new language. But yeah, well, I just I I don't want to get it away from equity because I also I I don't want to move us too swiftly on because but I also have questions around like um, like how this work becomes attractive in the dominant systems. And there's something about how we've positioned as the outside that has dramatically changed how people approach us. Right. So suddenly the New York City child welfare system looks at our website and speaks to us. And they like suddenly consider us viable or the International Red Cross reaches out to us and considers us a viable partner. I mean, when mm-hmm. those aren't things we've secured, but those are people who like have well, reached out to us now because of how we're positioned. And we're only six months old. So right. something has or happened. Organic Valley. We've, or, we've uh, put in proposals to them before. Yeah, nothing. And nothing. now it's like, OK, let's work together. Right. There's yeah. something about the way we're being positioned. And I. That's, that's, that's better. That's than the Tuesday Ryan Hart and Tim Mary brands in terms of this scale and type of work. Right, exactly. Okay, I would love to know what it was like for you to work yeah. with us on that. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious what that was like for you too, Tim. Like I had my own experience and in some ways I felt like I was kind of steering that ship because yeah. I have the most kind of background in it. And so, um, uh, you know, right. I I did a lot of like, mm, I don't know, blah, blah. but I was cu- I'm curious what it was like for the two of you to do that bit of writing collaboratively, all three of us. I mean, that took a good long time. Yeah, yeah. It did yeah, yeah. It happened over a period of weeks, even a couple of months, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, that was bushwhacking. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great, and and I think, um, I mean, really, what I was to you, I think, was I was an outsider. I am mm. an outsider to this work. I am an ally. I am a cheerleader, but I am not in the work that you're doing. I'm not particularly um, connected to what you guys are connected to in a direct way. I'm kind of an island mm-hmm. in regards to what you're doing. So for you to come to me and say, you know, I guess I've worked with other people that do, that sort of travel in similar circles, other organizations, and I have seen in them a paralysis of enthusiasm in the sense that the enthusiasm for the work and the space causes everyone to kind of start 
echoing each other, and it right. becomes this little right. sort of. Uh, uh, Not uh, familiar sort of... with that at all. Never seen that happen. Have you? Never seen. <laughs> yeah. Never seen that happen on a, a global scale in global networks, yeah. no. like self-reinforcing cycles of blindness. What is a? What is no, a? I've never uh, seen that. Consensus a, trance. We were talking about that yeah. the other night. What is a, a a collection of parrots? A murder of parrots? Can we say that? Murder of crows. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> murder of parrots. Um, but murder it, of parrots. I, I would I like find that. that a lot with with other organizations that I've worked with, where I would be talking them through, and we would we would be bushwhacking. We'd be trying to find the shape of a really important story that we're telling. And by story, I mean the same thing as you guys talking about equity, some kind of a aspect of big heart of the work. And they would just kind of like, oh, yeah, we know this. And they would sort of rattle off, that's what we're about. And I'm like, okay, what do you mean by that? And I, my job as a writer is to pull at what feels like a loose thread to me. Mm-hmm. And often when I pull... There's nothing. It it. There's no. There's no sweater there uh, on the end of that yarn. There's yeah, nothing there. Yeah. It's just a word that makes that person feel comfortable. Right. It helps them to identify as a part of that movement, as a part of that work, because they hear it so much around right. them. But it has been repeated so much that when you kind of poke a little and say, you know, considering how does that feel to someone who is perhaps not inside that that very insular circle. Um, Is it as meaningful to someone who isn't sort of fully anointed as it is for you? And um, a lot of the time that was a, that's always been a very illuminating practice and, and actually kind of fun because when you do pull at the thread and you show people how you're pulling at a thread, they're like, well, I guess, yeah, that isn't what I mean. And then as an Island, I can just come forward and throw a bunch of new, phrasings and ideas and metaphors and words at the wall and you know the initial response that people often have is well that's not us yeah and then they're like okay and then they they sort of read through because it's not because it comes from that island i'm not sort of immersed which is exactly what i want to be i don't i want to be on everyone's outside because as a writer i need to find it's got to make sense to me as an outsider it has to resonate so that we know that it will sort of pass muster with people that are not necessarily bought in yet to what you're talking about. No matter who you are, the way you speak and the way that you storytell should be resonant to someone who really doesn't get it. So if you're just reaching for those comfortable words um, most of the time, I mean, it's okay to use those words sometimes, especially when we're in sort of like-minded company. But the, 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 the practice of reaching to speak as plainly as we possibly can. And you guys are really good at that already. It's low-hanging fruit. But the practice of speaking plainly is a really beautiful study and really, really important. There was a client who once gave me the biggest compliment that I've ever had. And he said, he sort of, I I gave him uh, an essay um, that was sort of meant to embody the human story behind the company. And he laughed and he said, Kate, you write like someone who's never ever read marketing content before in your life Ah. and he kind of meant it as a bit of a a little bit of like a a a, a loving um tease Uh but I was like thank you that's fabulous that is exactly what I want you know the fewer syllables the better The, the less jargon the better and that's that's just that's just good no matter who you are no matter what you're doing if you want to be resonant you just have to find the human plainness 
and 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 the true sort of core of why why you feel invigorated when you do right. in your work. You know? And there's something in our brand that isn't a sell; it's an invitation. Yeah, that's right. Right. I mean, that, what we're not trying to sell you anything. Like if we're having to convince you that what we're doing is a good idea, bluntly, you're not going to last the. You're not going to last the game. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, really? Like, I, I, if I have to convince you that this is a good idea, there's no way you're going to survive the vicissitudes and uncomfort and despair and overexcitement that is, like, embedded in this type of work. So, like, it's an invitation. Like, the whole brand is set up as, like, do you see yourself in this? Yeah. Like, Like, you know? And even that like tagline on the opening page is like, hello, forward movement, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel like that speaks to forward movement. But like there's a piece of it, it's like, oh, no, I, that's me. Right. Like, right. like forward movement actually speaks to like the kind of person I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there's so there's something in like how we've managed to find the language around the brand that um, uh, mm. reflects something of the earlier DNA we were in. And I think that's one of the things we've actually been really careful about in terms of bringing people in like Mark Coffin, who's sitting across from us here as we do this or Kate, who's with us now or Jen McSween, like that, you know, Although they bring completely different skill sets than we have, there's actually some fundamental worldview that they're operating from mm -hmm. that's completely aligned, you know. And yeah. and uh, and so I think there's I think that is there's some like DNA base mm -hmm. of approach to life or approach to change or that um, unifies us though, even though we have completely different skill sets to bring to the table. I think there's a lot of humility in it. We've used that word before in this conversation, but you guys have a very humble, I mean, just to be okay with not knowing everything. There has to be a transparency to the story that you tell in the sense that you are not coming in. It's, it's both the model of what the outside is and it has to also match the expression, which is that you're not going to come in and do change for people. No. You're going to come in and sort of marvel together yeah. at the not knowing and marvel together at, at the wonder of, um, and, and the difficulty of trying and just trying um, really to be able to connect in the context of um, just that self-awareness. I mean, that's starting to sound a bit woo-woo, but, um, you well, know. How, how did you bridge that, Kate? I mean, like our, our field is kind of known for being a bit woo-woo, right? I yeah, think that sure. Tim and I are pretty grounded in that, try to be pretty plain spoken, but even mm -hmm. we can say, oh, okay, we're gonna go into jargon here. Yeah. And I'm really curious how you began to bridge what can feel like a, a field that's about orientation and worldview and consciousness and perspective. Yeah. Emergence. Emergence and We're gonna iteration. build the path as we walk it. Yeah, and how There's you no finish line. <laughs> and these are all things we say and people are like, yeah. And that's really hard to put on a website. Like we're not, you know, and, and, and so I'm curious how you began to bridge between what is kind of deeply emergent, evocative. Experiential. Yeah, work. And like to put those words on a screen or on a piece of paper so that people like the folks who are approaching us now in the first six months of our work are somehow getting it and, and yet not losing the essence. Like I don't feel like we're yeah. compromised no, at that's all. that's right. Yeah, that's true. I think that when you are thinking of, a, of, of, of creating content around your effort, whether it's a movement or an organization, a business, whatever it is, um, there is the tendency to feel like it has to be proper language, like it has to be authoritative, like it has to 
not necessarily have big words, but have the right words that you have to kind of, it's almost like virtue signaling. I have to move through the world as if I'm, you know, to attract success, we have to sound successful yeah. kind of a thing. Like there is almost like a, like a subconscious need to kind of identify tribally by ringing certain bells and showing up a certain way. I think that what we want ultimately for people to feel when they're in that solitary experience, if they're, they're looking at their laptop, they're at your website, whether it's yours or the metaphorical yours of the listener of whatever movement or business, instead of having that corporate proper front, I think it's better to have that human front that makes someone feel like ultimately in, in our written content, we need the reader to feel like they are sitting down with you, looking you in the eye, looking you in the eye and feeling like, oh, okay, I can breathe around these people because these people see my stuckness wow. and they're cool with it and they get it and they've been there and they see my hope and they've got it too. They say they have all the same questions I do. Like, oh, okay. Like we can all just stop putting up this facade of, of knowing everything. Um, so especially because you guys and, and really everyone listening, if they're involved in change, they all have very experience, sort of experience driven stories to tell that like if you're in the room, you'll just get it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is the challenge. How do you bridge right. the room and the solitary experience of someone Googling and landing on your website? Yeah. Ultimately, you want those written words to feel like they're spoken plainly. We want to ultimately bring the room to that person in a way that feels really, really, really intimate and not like it's pretending, not like it's trying to be authoritative, but as if it's one human speaking to another human. And that's what I try to do, no matter who I'm writing for. But and I just want to say, like, yes, and which is what Tuesday mm. does to me all the time. Like, yes, yes and yeah, that's a great yeah. idea, Tim. Yes, yes, and and uh, yeah, so yes, but. and yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, she doesn't do the but. She used that's to do right. yes, but now she does yes, and it was like a deliberate choice yeah. thing at some point, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah, and uh, so the, so the yes, and is like, and I feel like um, uh, part of what we do is is like is the the way we're presented is incredibly professional and competent. Yeah. So like that kind of like somehow mm -hmm. there's a marriage that you've managed to create in the branding of the outside that is simultaneously very human, very intimate, quite relaxing, like a breath of fresh air, quite literally, mm -hmm. you know. Yet at the same time, as a senior leader in an organization, I can be like, okay, they've got their stuff together. They know yeah, what they're doing. We have, this is yeah. this this feels comfortable to yeah. me, you know. And, I, and like and like and it's like, why would somebody trust me with their system mm -hmm. or their organization if they look at the website and it feels like a and it feels like a struggling not for profit, mm -hmm. right? Or why? Because like people are going to trust you with their systems, with their organizations that they care about most. If you are able to present yourself in a way that you like, you can be trusted with that, you know. So I think there's a real and that was like one of the very early lessons I got, mm -hmm. you know, like way 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 back when we were starting the business and like I was just like not doing my invoicing properly and all of this kind of stuff was going on and someone just said to me well you know if you can't even invoice properly why would someone yeah. trust you with their organization they're not mm -hmm. going to and it's the same thing with the branding like that level of professionalism that we bring to the work accompanied with the human part mm -hmm. which I feel like our global network has a lot of tendency towards yeah. but when that gets married with the kind of professionalism at the same time mm -hmm. that becomes an incredibly strong invitation yeah. to people of greater and greater 
scale to invite in this type of work. And and so I think there's something we've achieved there that, um, or at least seem to have achieved based upon the people who are coming, yeah. getting in touch with us, mm-hmm. that gives people confidence, both and I, I in the unknowing of, and in the professionality. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I'm trying to loop this around for the listener, like, okay, so what are we saying? How do we do that? Because that is true. You want extreme, like radical competence. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time as something that feels familiar, friendly, and intimate. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. and again, that's something as, as a writer that's really tough to articulate. How do you reach that balance? And I think you used the word confident. And that there's a really short bit from the book here that I think is what I want to say, if you don't mind if I just read it. it. The practice of visual art is not only in what we show, but in what we take away. A photographer sees things in the frame that don't add to the composition or that detract from it, and she makes it disappear, diminishes it into shadow, changes her position, abstracts with shallow depth of field. An Alex Colville painting or a Mapplethorpe portrait have space inside them, brave, empty space, and it sends our gaze to exactly where the artist points. They not only show less, but they bask in the less, throwing the point into sharp relief. This is white space. So when I think about what I felt like you needed, and what I feel honestly like every brand, I know that's a kind of a dirty word, but every, every story that needs to be told on behalf of a movement, an organization, a person, any sort of a positive generative thing, I think the how and how to reach that balance point of intimacy and humanism and connection with competency and like, you know, not like the kind of authority, like the trust, basically that kind of authority. Um, The way that you do that is by through that brave white space of not trying to be everything to everyone, but just and I think that's what the website tries to do both in in, 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 in composition and in design is to let the white space stand because that somehow, both in terms of the space around the words, choosing fewer words, choosing plainer words, mm-hmm. and, and that is hard work mm. because yeah. what gives us confidence is more words. Right. And well, if I just drop this in, if I throw this on top of the wagon too, then someone might recognize that and go, ooh, that's impressive. But then if I also throw this and that thing on there too, then that might, might resonate for the guy over there. And ultimately what we're doing is, is to put it frankly, we're kind of pissing into the wind. It, it really doesn't... Well, we're drowning our content. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're drowning. Yeah. We're actually diluting our message. Yeah, that's exactly. You kind of make a, you know dog's breakfast of it and so i think the more you strip away can i when, ask is this a nova scotian term dog's breakfast i feel like i, I heard it here this week a lot and i don't know that i've ever heard dog's it dog's in- breakfast did you hear it before you came to nova yeah. scotia yeah oh. just like a mixture of stuff you know all the leftovers yeah i guess there you go Maisha, my little 14 year old dog who hasn't whined at the door amazingly or maybe she did whine at the she door she came over a little she bit she did yeah, yeah. She, got, right. she just she wants to be part of the cutie. podcast i know yeah like i get it she's been around 40 years she deserves to be part she's raised three she children she wants to come up to the to the mic and say oh. <laughs> she's raised three children let's not mess around yeah. i was thinking that kate after this conversation i am so curious mm. to know what song oh. you are listening to right now I mean, I just yeah, can't even imagine. Yeah, we asked you to bring a song to the podcast. What you got? Because it is a 
connected so deeply to what we spoke of, and it is my chosen interpretation of nihilism. Okay. Which I find deeply refreshing, and which is kind of perhaps not the way the nihilists meant it to be, but screw them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, is, Is Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. So now you see the light. Make buttercream, plant vegetables, uh, and just show up in a way that is genuine as, as best, you know, and keep trying and then wake up tomorrow and try again. I used to uh, I used to sing that song to my kids to get mm-hmm. get them up in the morning, you know. Get up, stand up. And I was like, get up, stand up. You're gonna and miss the bus. Yeah, right. It's like all stuff like that, exactly. And so I do it, and then eventually I played them the real song, and they're like, oh my god, it's a real song. Oh. It's not something you just do to wake us up, you know. Yeah. Kate, thank you so much for You're joining welcome. us on this podcast. It's been amazing. It's, it's been amazing to have you with us and to kind of both get your insight into the work and from your own experience, but also to begin to share how others can start thinking about how they articulate their work and the Mm -hmm. kind of parameters through which they can find their own story and their own voice. Beautiful. That's it for this episode of Find the Outside the Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. New podcasts are available every second Tuesday. That's right, you got it. If you'd like to get in touch about with us about something you've heard on the show, drop us an email at podcast at findtheoutside.com. You can find the link to any of the resources, poems, books, songs we mentioned during the show in the show notes for the episode over at findtheoutside slash podcast or in the description of the podcast in the podcast app you're listening to us on. And don't forget to go check out the pot, the Spotify playlist. It's awesome. It's full of all the songs we pulled together. Just search for Find the Outside on Spotify playlist and it will pop right up. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Coffin at Sound Good Studio. And the theme music was by my good mate, Gary Blakemore. <laughs> <laughs>